0: Hello, everyone, and welcome
1: back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Paul Pesich about his book about the politics of the development of the U.S. Navy in the Gilded Age and Progressive Era, entitled Congress Buys a Navy. Paul, welcome to the show.
0: Oh, good morning. How are you? Pretty good. How are you doing? I'm oh, fine.
1: I-, I wonder if you could start uh, us off by telling the listeners something about yourself.
0: Well, it's kind of a long story because I'm an old guy by now. But uh, I started out with a Navy career, uh, and I was commissioned back in 1961 and uh, became a Navy pilot. And I spent most of my career flying uh, on aircraft carriers. Eventually, I flew jets. I served in Vietnam for 13 months from, let's say, 1966 to 67. uh, But primarily, I was a carrier pilot. And uh, I went through the ranks and I ended up by commanding a squadron of S-3 uh, jet planes and then uh, had carrier duty. I was operations officer on a nuclear carrier and then a navigator on the Dwight D. Eisenhower. And then I went to Europe for three years and I was a NATO chief of staff in, in Naples in the southern region where we did the uh, anti-submarine warfare for the Mediterranean and the Black Sea. And uh, then I went, came back home to uh, Florida, where I commanded uh, Naval Air Station Whiting Field. And then finally, my last tour was at Naval War College, uh, where I held the Stephen B. Luce uh, Chair of Naval Strategy. And so that's my Navy career. But when I ended the Navy career, my friends at the War College uh, really en- enjoyed uh, introducing me to scholarship, and they said that you that I like scholarship, and they recommended that I go on to get an advanced degree. I already had a bachelor's degree in philosophy from Holy Cross uh, College, and I had a master of strategic at a university in uh, Newport. It didn't work that way. Stony Brook. Uh, was, yeah, you got that one. I, Stony Brook was a little bit more fussy than that. They said, well, you, got, you have scholarship behind you, but you've never studied history. I said, oh boy, okay. So, so you have to start with your master's degree. So if you can imagine this 52-year-old retired Navy captain showing up where there were more women than men in the class, and they were small classes. There were like 10 to, 10 to 12 people in the classes. And uh, these were, um, when I say women, these were women from the so-called Seven Sisters, which don't exist anymore, but uh, like Smith College and, and really high-level s- scholars. So I learned a lot from them. And, of course, as the master's level, it was pretty much reading for a year and a half. They advertised that you could finish in a year, but I never knew anybody who could do it in a year who could do all that reading. So a year and a half, and then I got into the doctorate program, and I started studying the Navy because I was interested in Stephen B. Luce and uh, uh, Admiral Alpha Thayer Mahan, who, who I had studied and taught when I was at the Navy War College. And from those guys, I realized that, uh, not that they weren't in charge, but they were somewhat exaggerated. I, I occasionally get criticized for this. They were, it's like I don't like those guys, and that's not true. They were, they were terrific, but they didn't have as much voice in actually creating the Navy as, as I thought. Now, Luce was my hero because he was the one who really started enlisted Navy training, uh, he actually stopped whipping, if you can imagine that, when we went from sail to steam. He said that we're not going to use cat-nine-tails anymore. And then they established uh, ships, which were receiving ships for sailors, instead of just putting them on a ship and and go learn how to sail. Uh, uh, so he was very, he was noted for that. He That was a great contribution, which people really don't look at. And I didn't put very much of that in the book because it really wasn't what I was dealing with. But I saw that... Uh, he, he was really an instrumental guy. He was the one that secretaries of the Navy would send on special missions to, to find out uh, if the shipyard was efficient and things like that. And then by the time of the Civil War, uh, he was in charge of the uh, fleet training for enlisted guys. Now, Mahan was different. Luce was a midshipman at the age of 14. Mahan was a very late bloomer, he started the midshipman around the age of 19. Luce's career is amazing because he, he was a midshipman in New York, and then his first deployment was three years. So he's a kid. He turns 15, 16, 17. He does Europe. He comes back home for a while, not too long. Then he gets on another ship and goes around South America, goes to Japan, the first U.S. Navy warship in Japan, and Luce is still a kid on that. And I, try, I wrote a little bit about that in the book just to capture the concept that these naval officers were not the arist- aristocrats that they're sometimes accused of being. Yes, their families were arist- aristocratic. Luce's family, I think, came over on a Mayflower or something like that. And uh, he had a personal interview with the president when he was 14. But you can't take the fact away that this guy spent three years here, three years there, came back, in another two-year deployment. These guys were sailors, and what did they do? They learned their scholarship at sea. They lived in the lowest deck. It's called the Orlop deck, all the way way at the bottom of the ship, and they had books, and and they read, and they learned, and they didn't become officers for sometimes like 10 years or something like that. They were in their mid to late 20s by the time they became officers, so all of a sudden they had tremendous respect to these because there was no communication. I mean, you know, when you're in Japan in uh, 1860, you know, could you come back a couple of months later and tell them what you did. That's, that's the way it worked. So they were very independent, which has been a fault of the Navy, which I think is a great fault. Uh, the naval officers at sea uh, make their own decisions. So having said all that, now I'm thinking about who built the Navy. So I'm focusing on those guys. And um, I started with biographies, which to really in, absorb a biography takes a lot of time, as you probably know. And there were a lot of books written about it, but I started with, a, with the Library of Congress. And that's when I was introduced uh, into the concept of how many feet of uh, information it was on a particular person. Like my hand, I don't remember how many feet it was, like six or seven feet of records or something like that. So that was my start. Uh, with naval officers. Then when I started looking at what they did, I realized that uh, Secretary of the Navies were important. And uh, then I started doing the bios of them, and that found me in in museums, I mean in libraries all over the place. One of my most interesting library experiences was in Bowdoin College up in Maine, and I was looking at uh, Speaker of the House Thomas Reed, and this was a very formal uh, library, you know, you take your jacket off and, and you, all you can have is a piece of paper with a hole in it so that you know what it is and you allow pencils to go in there and I'm sitting at the the table and the nice librarian brings out uh, records from uh, Thomas Reed and they're written in French because he fa- practices French language when he was writing the stuff and that was, <laughs> that was a lot of fun. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> you know, so so these were the encounters and the uh, and then I, then, then my next step, after I read the, uh, both biographies and read the correspondence, then I moved over to, uh, from the Library of Congress to the, uh, legislative affairs, uh, of the Library of Congress. Uh, and the legislative affairs uh, branch is uh, department is kind of new it 's probably from the sixties or seventies and it was a small branch and now it's now it's devoted to legislative affairs and those guys were those guys were really great that's that's where I did the bulk of my intellectual thinking the other stuff was simply gathering and that's when I got to look at the the uh, community committee records and uh, this is something that you know i you know, as historians, we we try to find out everything we can about it, and that's where I found out everything I could. Those were living documents for me. When I could actually read not just a congressional record, which is always available in, in major libraries, but the committee records and to see what their arguments were. And some of them were pretty specious. You, you read these things, I can't believe that that was their argument. But the setup, when I started... Uh, kind of deciding. I didn't decide on the end date, but I decided on a beginning date. I decided that I'd start with Garfield, because he was an interesting guy. He he picked a secretary of the Navy out of the blue simply to reward him for being a Republican. He was a Southerner in, this, in uh, New Orleans, and his uh, background was uh, Northern universities where he didn't like slavery. So that he's down in New Orleans now, and uh, he doesn't like slavery. He doesn't like the war and all that sort of stuff. So after the war, uh, the Republicans uh, don't like him. The southern Republicans, of course. And uh, he he's a lawyer, and eventually he becomes or he wins the position of uh, being the head lawyer in New Orleans. But it doesn't work because that's that's when the, uh, f- at the first really well-known uh time when they decide what the, the, how should I say this, what we did with uh, Bush some years ago, it was kind of a recount, and they decided that the three states, I guess it was Florida, Louisiana, and I forget, the third state, uh, South Carolina, Carolina had had Mm -hmm. false uh, uh, records, and they sent the Congress down there and, and, and this guy ended up by not getting the position so they felt sorry for him sent him to, New York, sent him to Washington to make him Secretary of the Navy eventually because he lost his power in Louisiana and I'm that, thinking that this is that actually, that,
1: if I may that, that actually gets sure. to one of the uh, points that you make about the Secretary of the Navy during the early part of your book which is that they it, it's, it's, a, it's a cabinet level position uh, it, it's sort of uh, equivalent today to the Secretary of Defense And yet at the same time, it is not really the the most important position. So oftentimes it serves as a a way of satisfying various political ambitions or checking off certain political boxes and not so much about choosing someone who, say, has a uh, vast knowledge or experience with the Navy.
0: That's exactly right. In fact, that's even more uh, firmer than you said because it was absolutely a reward. And it was also the lowest of all the cabinet members. It was the least important one. I mean, you know, when he took over, what, they have like 30-something ships, and I think there was five or six of them that were iron. The rest were all wooden. And he didn't know anything about the Navy. I I do mention it in the book a little bit, and I didn't want to do too much with it because that takes the Navy back to the aristocracy. But he he, uh, was wealthy, a wealthy lawyer from New Orleans, and uh, he joined a club in uh, Washington, D.C., and that's where he met these senior naval officers, the so-called uh, aristocracy, came from wealthy families, so like the Cosmo Club, that sort of thing. That wasn't the one it was, but that's that's the concept. So yeah, there is there is a nexus between how the Secretary of Navy gets elected and how he meets his uh, senior staff, which is not very encouraging because they say, gee, is that how it works? And of course it's not how it works, but that's how it how it appears sometimes, it's just a bunch of aristocrats. There, in fact, there is a book written about, the na- name of it is called The Naval the Naval Aristocracy by Peter Carsten and, and uh, that he spends his whole time doing that. I'm not too sure what his intent is, if he's just trying to kind of make fun of us or what, but uh, with all my sea experience I can say we were not aristocrats. That's for sure. <laughs> we're <out> sea. <laughs> that's the furthest thing from our minds.
1: I, I was wondering if you could Uh, elaborate upon one of the points you just made and and provide a bit of context for for, uh, the listeners uh, about the status of the Navy immediately after the Civil War because one of the things that struck me is that you really highlight at the beginning of the book what is something of of an odd contrast which is that we have this great seafaring tradition going back, naval history tradition going back to John Paul Jones in the American Revolution and then you have you know Oliver Hazard Perry in the War of eighteen twelve, and yet you would think that there would be a lot invested in the Navy, and yet you describe that uh, even after the Civil War, which had this uh, unprecedented buildup, that, that the Navy is not exactly a a a, a leading fighting force uh, at, at that time. Do you start the book?
0: Well, part of the problem or whatever it is, it's it's a matter of. The way we fight, the and I, I used the term guerre de corps and guerre des cadre, which are French words. And uh, the war, of course, basically means uh, a commercial war. And that's the wars that we fought until the Spanish-American War. And we were totally outnumbered by Great Britain, so the Navy's job, the spunky old Navy, is what they called it, would try to uh, sink all the... Commercial ships, and that's what we did. In fact, in fact, uh, somewhere along the line, I think it was in the eighteen thirties uh, uh, when we ruined the uh, British whaling trade by uh, going out and sinking all the whalers. You know, th- those are not big issues, but the navy itself had this job of going around and, and uh, sinking commercial ships. The problem was, uh, the, at the end of the Civil War, the, the navy wasn't disbanded but they were certainly reduced. And I I think I mentioned this, but it might not be understood by the public that the army at the time of the Civil War was uh, uh, basically a reserve army. It was a temporary army. They were either drafted or volunteered. And most of the the colonels and majors and all those guys couldn't wait to get back to their profession where well, the Navy requires a significant number of years to learn seamanship. So they were regular officers, and regular officers can't get fired. <clears throat> they, can, they can resign or they can have a crappy job. So what happened, they have all these regular officers, and, and the ships are in decline, and they're not making any more ships. So it is true that by 1880 there was a glut of naval officers who weren't getting their sea time. So then Congress jumps in and says, if they don't get their seat time, they don't get promoted. So this is how the period starts. Uh, it was not in total neglect, but they didn't have any plan in the, by 1881 when Garfield took over. And the first uh, the Secretary of Navy at the time was not that kind of a hard charger. By this time, uh, Luce was an admiral and uh, Luce was clamoring for ships, and he wanted to change the Navy organization of cabinets. He says, it's corrupt. It's uh, Congress, it's in Congress's pocket.
1: Uh, could, and, could, you and, ex- could you explain that organization a bit? Because it really is a, an important part of the book itself. You, you, you uh, discuss it uh, throughout every chapter because it remains in place throughout uh, most of the period that you're, that you're covering. It,
0: re- it remains in place until the 1940s. Mm-hmm. That, you know, I don't know if you realize that. It wasn't until after World War two that the uh, that that they were disbanded that the departments were disbanded when I joined the navy uh, well, it was nineteen sixty one I had a life preserver that said bu Air on it Bureau of aeronautics. They had already been disbanded, but some of the stuff still had the bu air model mode on the back of it and what this meant was the the bureaus were founded before the Civil War and they were altered a little bit during the Civil War but they they answered directly to Congress. Now, this is kind of a strange situation that started from the 1830s, where they figured that they going to. the Navy was more complicated than the Army, and it had bureaus. And it, the number varied, but it was generally about eight by the time I was writing. And the, the most important bureau was the so-called Bureau of Navigation. And that guy was in charge of operating. Even though he was not the senior, he was generally the, the most you know, important one. So the bureaus got their funding from Congress, and uh, this was a, a strange situation. I'm sure there were other ones, industrial ones, but for the Navy, having eight bureaus who, who answered to Congress, not the Secretary of the Navy or the President. And uh, their funding was by congressional line items. And that gets a little bit confusing what's a line item. It means that the Congress decides to give the uh, uh, Bureau of Yards and Docks X number of dollars per year. It doesn't decide to give the Navy a total number of dollars for the Navy to divvy it up. It specifies this actual total amount in millions of dollars per session as to what they're going to give to each bureau. And the bureaus went from navigation to yards and docks to all the way down to uh, medical and supply. There were eight of them. Uh, Personnel was in the navigation department. So this system was unique, and this system really had a a, a nexus with Congress that uh, the other services didn't have. So throughout the entire period, uh, they are essentially answering to Congress, even though they are answering to the head of the Navy. We don't have a chief of naval operations at the time until uh, uh, much later, until World War I. So there is no single head. There's no single officer head of the Navy. And and that's, to me, that's a really interesting concept because uh, how can you run a military organization without having a head? Mm The Army always had a commanding general or something like that. So the Navy had no head. The the head uh, was the admiral in charge of the Navigation Bureau who decided uh, on the deployments and training and stuff like that, but he did not rule over the other seven bureau chiefs. Uh, Supposedly, the Secretary of the Navy did, which which was his job to do that, but uh, in in reality, it was the Congress who really uh, controlled the eight bureaus and throughout the entire period of my book and then in various periods up until that post-world War two when it just got so big they decided to disband the navies I mean the Navy's uh, bureaus so if you can imagine this organization dysfunctional is not an exact word but it comes to mind you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, is it really dysfunctional well yeah because uh, the Congress has too much Authority is that a good thing to say? Well, that's their job to have authority, you know. And 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 Congress, of course, will not have any. They won't listen to anything about disbanding the bureaus. They don't do that until the nineteen forties. obviously not, you know, because each guy has his own uh, a little patch that he's interested in. So that's that's a, a, the situation that I started with, and it took me a while to figure out that in Congress there were. They were all—they were guys who were, of course, posturing when you're reading the Congressional record, but when you're looking at the committees, you realize that they're dealing with self-interests. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you say, well, is that bad or is that good? And some of the self-interests are, are natural. I mean, in 1881, the South wanted ships in southern ports. That was their 100% goal. They didn't care what they were, and they wanted iron ships, because of the crazy reason that iron ships rust faster than steel ships. So the iron ships uh, go into freshwater rivers, and the South has a fresh bunch of freshwater rivers. And what the South wants is independence and nothing to do with the North. And their solution, this is congressional solutions, is to get ships. And throughout the period, the South has a pretty good-sized voice. Uh, the voice of the Northern industrialists Congressional now, is that they want the ship building to be in the North. So it's almost as if there's a trade-off. The South wants the ports, and the North wants to build the ships. And as early as the 1880s, the West Coast is already afraid of Japan. So they want ships in Japan. Uh, It takes from 1880 to 1914 to get a canal, right? To get the canal to finish 1914. Mm -hmm. And they keep on getting a promise. Yeah, we're going to build a canal, we'll send the ships around. You can imagine how You know, you're in California, and and, and if you want to ship it, how long is it going to take the steam from Norfolk to San Francisco by going around? So they want shipbuilding on the West Coast, and they're not particularly interested in arguing whether it's going to be government shipbuilding or commercial shipbuilding. They just want ships. And, of course, the majority of the Midwest and Southern Midwestern doesn't want a Navy at all. (laughs) So Mm -hmm, so that's, that's what you're faced with, you know, and that's what it looks like. That's almost consistent throughout the period, although towards the turn of the century, by the time we get into the Spanish-American War, uh, the the South is no longer uh, wedded to the idea of ports, but they then they become wedded to the idea of government-owned uh, shipbuilding, and that becomes the, the next argument. Uh, because uh, they want the industry in the South. First they just want the ships, and then they want the industry. So that's a major battle, and uh, that is actually Republicans versus Democrats. And the Democrats finally uh, uh, take over the Southern Democrats, of course, uh, during the Wilson administration, when there's a big movement for uh, uh, government uh, shipbuilding. And, of course, the Republicans and the Northern guys say, this is expensive because... uh, if we have government shipyard, what are we going to do Hire and fire, hire and fire? Well, the commercial guys, he's got some kind of a postal ship next to him and a, and a cruiser next to him and stuff like that. And that's what they do. They, they ebb and flow. Mm-hmm. But if the government's going to do its own ship building, then it's going to be much more expensive. Then that becomes the argument that, no, we can do it cheaper and uh, we can't do it cheaper. That goes on way, at, way past my period. It's probably still going on. I don't, I don't really know. Not shipbuilding. Now I know the nuclear ships that that now on was on was built in, in Newport News uh, by a civilian operation. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you, you you mentioned in the book the uh, issue, for example, with armor plating, and I thought that was a good way of of getting to the issue in a, in, a, in a more focused way, which was that you had this transition taking place uh, from wood uh to iron, which was, you know, under which was well underway when you start the book, and then you're going from iron to steel. And right. how there's this question about how much it costs per ton of iron plate. And you get offers from uh Carnegie Steel and uh I think the other one was Bethlehem, and they're proposing that it's going to cost them a minimum of say five hundred dollars per ton. And as you point out in the book, there are various uh special uh ways of preparing the the, the, the metal which Uh, The the steel which uh, drives the cost and the attitude in Congress, which you know, localism aside, is about you know basically reducing expenditures. They feel that this is outrageous.
0: Well, well, it's actually uh, that's a very good point. But it's more than that. It's not just this outrageous. They see their contemporary industrial leaders cheating. Whether it's cheating or not, I don't know. I mean, I kind of do know in some cases it was, but what they see is that these guys overcharging to make money, and that's what Congress wants to stop. They're they're not as much worried about uh, quality, or they are worried about it sometime. And also, if, if you remember, which I don't cover it very well, is that's a period of time when steel is really being developed. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's uh, it goes from iron to steel. So we have uh, some congressmen who have the steelmakers in their district who think it's very good. And they're the minority. The majority of Congress decides that the, the industry is charging them too much, $500, 400 $300. So Congress will arbitrarily set a price. And it was $300 for quite a while. So what happened is, especially with the cruisers, they didn't get built. Mm-hmm. They stayed in the yard and they waited a year or two to get armor. So that was a pretty significant uh, action. And then, then, this next problem, which I only talk about a little bit, is they put the armor in the wrong place. This was the Navy's fault. So uh, it, it, the ship looked wonderful until they loaded it up, and then it uh, sunk. I mean, it didn't sink, so you couldn't do it, but it, but it went lower in the, in the water. The water line went down, which meant that the armor was now below the water line, which didn't do any good. You want your armor at the water line and above so that was another big problem that the navy had and that, that one was i think the navy's fault but the arguments about the armor uh were, were real and they were long-term and uh we sent navy guys over to europe to to france and to england to see what kind of arm steel they used and how much they paid and that sort of stuff and uh, that that went on and on all the way into the 1900s about uh, what kind of steel, and how much to do it, and, and are they making too much money on us? And uh, Congress, I, I hesitate to say this, but I think Congress was almost a, a decent watchdog on that particular one. But there were some guys like Reed who just didn't want big ships. So he was anti-armor, period, because he didn't need them. That's what that, that they said. So the, those guys were obstructionists, and those were the guys who were dominant who kept the price of $300 uh, a, a ton and uh, caused uh, a, a fair amount of sh- pre-Spanish-American uh, war ships to be delayed by, by a couple of years. That was a pretty interesting operation. But also, uh, in keeping in the book, doesn't that show that Congress buys the Navy? I mean, it, to me, that's that's perfect example you know there's money and they buy it and it's their money and whatever the Navy wants uh, uh, is not going to be the end result uh, mm-hmm. so it's actually delayed so there you go
1: and, and that that money issue becomes even more important given the technological transformation that's taking place not just the transition from wood to iron to steel but also the innovations in gunnery you have uh, technologies like the sub the submersible, the submarine, which are being uh, developed uh, during the period you're covering. And that's a consideration, a concern for several naval officers, but Congress is never really considering that this technology is changing and this technology, when it, as it's changing, is not leading to cheaper ships, but more expensive ones.
0: It, it never does. Right? <laughs> yeah, you got that right. And, and uh, the technology... And if you really think about it, I don't know if there's a comparable technology with aviation uh, because aviation, although those planes are, are super, there's a lot less technology in an airplane than there is in an aircraft carrier, or I should say a battleship, because my period is battleships. You know, when you when you have the the ships, just just to give you some numbers, uh, the World War II destroyers uh, maybe had a Crew of uh, 180 or something like that. My squadron with 10 aircraft uh, on a, aboard the uh, John F. Kennedy uh, had a had 220 men. That's one squadron. We had uh, 10 squadrons on the aircraft carrier, and that's not counting to go the crew that runs the carrier on the ice on the Eisenhower. We had 6,000 men on it. So that's. That's a tremendous leap in technology that was occurring starting in the 1880s. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing here is that the sailing the sailing ships had twice as many or three times as many sailors on it as the steel navy did. I don't know if you caught that in the book or if you even noticed it. Well, when I talked about uh, Luce and Mahan being midshipmen, mm-hmm. because they had they had guys whose sole job was to climb up in one spot in one place in the rigging and adjust that line and they might have as many as a, as a hundred sailors up in the rigging at the same time so when they switched over to the steel navy without sails uh, the the man- manning level went down but of course the technology went up mm-hmm. and I'm, I guess you should, I'm sure you caught this because you read it but uh, the first three ships the abc's uh uh actually four the atlantic boston uh chicago and uh dolphin uh yeah, dolphin uh they also had they had to have sails the congress required that the navy didn't want that the congress had to have they had to have sails just in case and because the world, the Civil War model was, even if they had those uh, basic engines, some, some with paddle wheels and some with uh, screw propellers, uh, they would not use them all the time. They would sail because they would save on the uh, coal and that sort of thing. But then later on, up until uh, the ABCDs, uh, they said, well, we still have sales. Uh, I, don't, I didn't cover this in a book by my hand, Got in a lot of trouble for that when he was a captain. Captain of the Chicago, uh, he was in Europe and he was getting accolades for his 1890 book by the British. They all thought it was wonderful, you know, sea power and world and all that sort of stuff. And and uh, the admiral on the ship really truly disliked Mahan. Well, how does he? How do you get along if you, if the admiral doesn't like you when you're the commanding officer of a ship? So Mahan got a bad sh- fitness report because he didn't know how to sail. That's what the <laughs> Admiral said. So Mahan got all upset and did it. He said, I'll I'll show you. And he did it. And it, and it was successful. But boy, I tell you, that crew must have been uh, hard worked. I would not have wanted to have been on that ship when you got that kind of conflict on the bridge. And then you have to go do something that you've never done before to prove that you can sail. And that's the last... Uh, Incident that I know that it became a big issue and then they took the sails down. But you can see that transition. And what has Congress got to do with that, you know? (laughs) How how, how do they care whether you can sail it or not? So I I don't think they did. I think they let the Navy do that. Congress was money, you know, Mm and that's, is it functional? Is it money? And I think that the technology issue, the gunnery issue was another big one. Uh, And... This was something that we were learning about. Uh, do you have a, a way for sparks to go down into your uh, ship and and blow up all the powder that's down there? What kind of breaches do you have, and how do you get the gunpowder up to the to the level of the sh- of the shooting area? So those are the things that the navy was doing, and the and I, I mentioned it one time when there was a big fight between two magazines of all things. This was in the 1890s when one magazine was taking the part of the anti-navy, saying that the ships were no good, they were they were sinking because they had too much iron on them and all, and they were improperly built. And then the other magazine says, no, everything's great. And then they counter counterpart, counterpart. They went for about, oh, four or five issues on this. And uh, I didn't know anything about it until I started it. And then I said, i got find to out, find out these two, magazines, noted magazines, who were talking about the Navy in the 1890s at this argument about uh, whether they were good or bad. And as it turned out, we never really had any disasters, so I guess I could end up by saying they were good. Uh, and did Congress have anything to do with this? Yes, in that they were saying, well, we don't want that type of ship, but uh, armor was the thing, and then they're going but that that was the money thing that the other part was the navy construct contractors, and then that became an argument to, whether they were civilian or government contractors but but you really hit the nail on the head, and that almost as far as I know lasted probably up until World War two and thereafter we stopped putting armor on the ships but uh, uh, how how are you going to get a uh, big bullet to bounce off it, you know, that's, shooting each other now 10, 10 miles apart and stuff like that. So, yeah, yeah, yeah that, that was a big issue.
1: One of the other uh, aspects of naval, uh, you know, development that you discuss in your book is foreign policy because at the same time as you're seeing this technological transfer, uh, transition that you cover, there's also a growing engagement with the world Which changes some of the dynamics, uh, involving naval policy and the role of the Navy. Whereas prior to the 1880s, 1890s, there was not necessarily, uh, much of a constant requirement to have, uh, a large naval presence, uh, globally. This begins to change with, uh, the growing, uh, interest in Hawaii, uh, the uh growing interest in, in in what's happening uh in Asia. And then of course you have the Spanish American War. And, and and you also as part of that you, you this is where you tie it into the uh Harrison administration, Benjamin Harrison's administration, and the figure of Benjamin Tracy. And I was wondering if you could speak a bit to what was happening there in the eighteen nineties and how that uh also uh places uh certain imperatives upon Congress to uh uh to to uh Develop the navy uh, and and grow the navy.
0: Well, the the foreign the foreign affairs is uh, developmental, as you know. And the Hawaii case is uh, probably central. Although I, I do I do talk about it. Uh, it was the Boston, which was the second of the new ships from the eighteen eighties, that went to Hawaii. So, what business do we have doing it? What are we doing in Hawaii? Okay. Well, the Americans, or the expatriate Americans, or whatever you call them, they're, they're Hawaiians. They've been there for a generation. We all, we all know about uh, missionaries going to Hawaii before the Civil War, but by the time of the rise of the New Navy, Hawaii, the um, ex-Americans now take over the Hawaiian Islands. They basically arrest all the Hawaiian people, and they kick out the Queen and all that sort of stuff. And the Boston is there, and the, the ambassador calls the Boston in to send the army at that time the Boston. The cruisers always carry the armed forces with a couple of hundred. So they come ashore to take over Hawaii. And that becomes an issue until the Spanish-American War as to uh, what are we going to do with Hawaii? And once again, Congress is involved in this. Some congressmen think that it's a good idea. Remember, up up until the Spanish-American War, the United States has never annexed anybody just haven't mm-hmm. done that so so the forces are sure there and we're trying to take over the government and that's the that's during the harrison the end of the harrison administration when it starts and that continues on until uh the spanish-american war when we don't we annex hawaii after we declare war on spain but the tracy case is interesting because he's a funny guy and i don't know how to handle him i don't know if he's a a phony a fake or unfortunate or really good at it, uh, of all the people who get elected as uh, the father of the New Navy, he seems to be one of the more dominant ones. And I know, I know you probably you read it, and I, there's a lot of guys you know, who get credit for being the star of the New Navy. Tracy does the most for the beginning of the New Navy. He himself, uh, a fascinating guy, a lawyer, and we don't know if he had Heart trouble or PTS or whatever whatever it was postmaster, but he had a just awful uh, uh, Civil War experience. He was uh, given a commission uh, because of his being a lawyer and all that sort of stuff. When he got into combat, he only lasted about two days, and and he and he was had heart troubles, is what they said. And then he went back and twice, and they finally relieved him and sent him back up to uh, New York to to run one of the Confederate prison camps. Uh, and he by now he was so wealthy that he took like a year off to to go to Europe. And so this is a really fascinating background for a guy that the uh, Harrison picks for his secretary of the navy. He's very a real political guy, and apparently really smart. And uh, he he really starts building the navy. However, my uh, not a criticism, but stating what he's doing. Once again, he is running it himself so now we have the legislative branch we have the secretary of the Navy uh, deciding what the senior officers should do in the Navy so it's not a happy match but he is a very good voice in Congress and he does make changes he gets changes made and he gets uh, good shipbuilding tragedy is house falls on gets on fire his, his house cost about four times more than his annual salary how about that his house in Washington <laughs> And and the way he paid for it was, he had all his racing his trotters. He was all the trotters in New York State. You know, big big racing. He owned a lot of horses, and he sold several of them to raise to to get forty thousand dollars to build a Washington mansion. And then a car on fire, and his wife died. So uh, after his wife died, he went to the White House, and Harrison took him in. They lived together for a while. So Harrison is a is a case that kind of is he is he likable or is he unlikable? Is he good for the navy? Uh, we find out later on that he was philandering with his niece, and after his wife, after Harrison's wife died, he married his niece and had a couple of kids by her. After he left the, the White House, so I said, "Wow, well, you know what? Wow. What is this? Yeah, what's happening here?" You know, uh, but he and Tracy and Harrison, it, for students of history. Would probably, people probably recognize this? That he was probably one of the most active uh, presidents after the Civil War. He had the most the most legislation. I think of everybody, but he's also responsible for Wounded Knee and all that other stuff. So he has a very spotty record there. Uh, but he actually becomes the guy that looks like he's building the new Navy. It really, he really does, and it's I don't like to jump on him too much for his uh, so-called peccadillas, but, but I think that Tracy had the right idea. He really wanted to, uh, once again, break up the bureaus. That, that was one of the things Tracy tried to do. And uh, there's no way. <clears throat> I mean, every Secretary of Navy, whether he was strong or weak, that's the very first thing they said, you know, this is wrong. It's not working right. They wants to break up the Navy. Uh, they made some changes to it, but they couldn't get rid of the eight bureaus. So, uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess you 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 think that you see Tracy as being the father of the Navy, or when when you're reading, or do you think he's just one of the good guys?
1: I, I see him really not in that sense, but just more that the way you present it in the book is that there's a turning point in the late 1880s and early 1890s, and you and it, it really is that at that point it's in a way it's of a piece of the more of the broader activism of the Harrison administration. But you also have a with with Tracy and uh, a, a more of a determined effort to build up the navy, and coupled with what the Harrison administration is doing with Hawaii, which when Cleveland returns to the presidency, uh, his administration uh, tries to undo. But you do see both the development of a navy and the development of a greater need for the navy, and and, and that and so when McKinley comes in in your book. It, you you have a navy that that goes to war in 1898, and it's very it, it's it's in a way it's Tracy's navy. It's the ships that they ordered. It's the cross the ball that they got rolling in the late 1880s and early 1890s. Because when McKinley, when, when you have John Long and Theodore Roosevelt in your book uh, talking about building up the navy, those ships aren't going to be ready in 1898. They're going to be ready in 1899. They're going to be ready in 1900. They're they're in essence that becomes the core of the Great White
0: Fleet. Yeah, well, <clears throat> well, that's that's exactly how I saw it because uh, you, you, you look at McKinley and you try to see the flow. Of Cleveland's second administration, which I thought very interesting because that was a real financial problem. Cleveland inherited that, but yet the, he kept on building out the navy that McKinley started. I mean that Harrison started. So there was continuity there, and uh, I. Can't get it Cleveland's head, but uh, Harrison definitely started that. To his, and I don't know if I would call that imperialism, but he he certainly was interested in outside the United States business and that sort of stuff. That's you know, that's clear about his actions and his all his stuff. So when after with the Hawaii incident or whatever whatever we call it, it was clearly a problem with the United States, and that's when the Navy had a voice saying that, hey, our ships are slower than the uh, postal ships, than the regular post office ships that are singing in the ocean. How can we do Guerilla decor when we can't even catch them? <laughs> you know? yes. That's that. That's what happens. I mean, that's that, to me, that's how I see the Harrison guys, but he, does, he doesn't get to spare ships. It's the next administration that gets it, but that's where it starts because they say, if we are going to seek out an enemy, we've got to be... Faster than the enemies. So that's when you have the, the race to, to be faster. Well, that's true. How can you chase somebody and be slower than them? You know, the old age of sail, it was all different things and how much canvas you put out and everything else. And now we're talking about weight and engines and gunfire, gunpowder. And uh, we did it. You know, it was, clearly we did it by the time of the Spanish-American War. Uh, and And how we got into that even today, it's argued. I I don't have any big problem with who blew up the Maine. Uh, uh, I don't know if you're aware of this, but Admiral Rickover was the one who did the final examination of the of the Maine. Did you know are you aware of that?
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, it was the uh, 1970s, uh, wasn't it? That, that right, that.
0: right, right. That's one of the kind of last things he did. So uh, at that at the point of the Spanish uh, McKinley. Had been at war, in the Civil War. Okay, he was a junior, junior uh, soldier, and he didn't like war. I mean, he he said, "I've been there, you know." And boy, do I think of that with my Vietnam experience. I said, "Yeah, by the way, I've I actually experienced war, you know, mm-hmm. and it's not much fun, you know. It's not It's not wonderful, and everything." So McKinley was very guarded about that, and and he said, "Let's make sure that uh, the domain was not blown up by ourselves, which we pretty much concluded it was." And the interesting thing there is for McKinley to see, to show that he didn't want to start war. Uh, I do said, mention it in the book, but maybe it's not uh, thought about, that the enlisted men could not go ashore. He didn't want any trouble. He didn't want any fighting or anything like that. Uh, and there, I, I guess uh, they were there for about three for three weeks or four weeks, and the guys, there was no shore leave. Only the officers could go ashore. So that shows McKinley doesn't want to aggravate the Spanish. and about seven or eight months before the Spanish-American War starts, they have another change of government, all that sort of stuff. And it looks like they're going to be uh, friendly with us, but guarded. So McKinley is accepting that. And uh, uh, the Spanish army is not. The Spanish army is still beating the heck out of all the peasants in Cuba. So that's why we're there. We're trying to do something. the ship blows up. Then what do you do? You can't ignore it, of course. And he's trying to have an examination. And naturally, at this point, Congress, which is very, or typical of Congress, they're going to be up in arms, right? Because they're the, they're the ones that work with the people. They're working directly with the people. So the majority of Congress says, we have to retaliate. And McKinley takes a couple of months to actually declare war. He actually says, uh, it, it, it sounds almost the same that George... W. Bush did in the Gulf War. If you think of the similarity there, where the United States was first going to go uh, and, and beat up and beat them up in Iraq, and, and then the next thing, uh, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff says, "Hey, Mr. President, we ought to go to the UN to get the UN approval of this instead of just going attacking uh, Iraq right now." And if you recall, we waited about two or three months in that period before we finally did the Iraq war. Well, McKinley's doing the same thing. He's trying to soften it. He says, let's make sure we have all our stuff together, make sure we have the right people there. Uh, We didn't have the the diplomacy problem that that George Bush had with the UN, but it was almost a similar situation where uh, McKinley decided, yes, he, he... wrote down, we have to have these things, if these things occur, we have to go to war, and then they finally said a state of war exists, blah, blah, blah. And there's a little navalism in here that I always have to put in, in, in just for the record. You're, I'm sure you're very familiar with Admiral Dewey down mm-hmm. there in, in, the, in the Philippines, and uh, uh, do you know what his famous quote is? Do you remember that in your, your studies?
1: Uh, you may fire when ready, Gridley.
0: <laughs> what, what's that all about?
1: Uh, that it's about when he decli- uh, orders the ships to begin no, opening up on no. the... No, ah.
0: He does not. The Admiral cannot order the Captain to do anything. The Captain is the one who fires the ship. That's ah. why that's so important. He says, you may fire when ready, Gridley. Think about that. That's what that's about. The Gridley no. is the Captain of the ship. He's the only one that can order his ship to fire when ready. How about that hmm a little bit of navalism and I have to throw that in was <laughs> <That's> what <laughs> that's all about <laughs> and my my editor one a wonderful woman editor uh, who who did the final work on the book and she was calling me a couple of times curious, curiously she said now you you write that uh, Dewey went into Manila took over wanted good good story about how it did and how the battleships and the cruisers and everything went. And then, then the people in Manila wouldn't let him use the cable to communicate. So he cut the cable. She says, isn't that cutting your nose off to spite your face or something like that? She was really, really. And I said, well, the way it worked is that the cable to Hong Kong came from New York, across the Atlantic ocean to England, a route all the way across to Hong Kong. And that's a pretty long stretch of cable. Mm -hmm. So our communication, uh, Roosevelt's famous ready, you know, be be ready to go, went via the Atlantic. It didn't go via the Pacific, because there was no Pacific cable for another 10 years or so. So if you think the communications through the British Embassy in Hong Kong, that's how we got our information. Dewey was an old timer, he was an old Navy guy. And uh, he does not need any direction from the United States to fight a war. That's Navy. I'll just fight my war here, you know. So I cut the cable. I don't need to talk to you guys. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to send a fast ship to Hong Kong back and forth every couple of days, and I'll tell you what I'm doing. Uh, that's kind of remarkable, you know. That's how we fought at that time. Because there was no, the ship-to-shore communication was, even in World War I, it was iffy but there was essentially none during the Spanish-American War. It was very difficult. You had to be very close in and there wasn't very much, much airways. So that that is, to me, uh, uh, the real change. The Spanish-American War, it, to me, is the first modern war. Not quite, but it's the first modern war for us because we were actually fighting ships. Now, I know it was the Spanish ships and they weren't as good as ours and all that sort of stuff. That's true. Uh, but they were. they were... A navy that had cruisers capable of fighting with us, and if, if I was not a good American sailor, I would almost feel sorry for them. You know, when they came across the Atlantic, and one thing I didn't cover, but I but I, I know this from history, that one of the ships was towed when they came across the Atlantic. And again, this is something that uh, was historic. You might not be aware that until we had nuclear carriers we had a requirement for aircraft carriers to be able to be capable of towing a ship. My first aircraft carrier was a World War II ship, the Wasp, but it was in its last days. And we used to have towing drills. So the Spanish had a destroyer that wasn't working. It lost its engine, so they towed it across. And that was that was common. Now, when you're towing a ship, of course, you're very vulnerable, naturally. So what uh, the Spanish uh, Quivera did was to go a bit south trying to get fuel, And when he finally could, they they would only give him enough coal to go to Cuba. So he got to Cuba before we found out where he was. Uh, And he got in port in southern Cuba. So he's got his whole fleet in there. And our fleet comes out and uh, Roosevelt and those guys have have their land fight. And and all Quivera can do is to try to see if he can escape. He, He knows that he's bottled up. He knows that he can't. That there's no way that he's going to fight. So he gets all his guys in a line of battle and steams out, and every single one of them gets sunk. It's a mm-hmm. tremendous victory for us, and it's the first true U.S. big war, big ships to ships. And they people would look at it again, and look at the armament, they look at the gunnery and everything else, uh, but the Spanish wasn't fear. They didn't have the things that we had. We had battleships and stuff like that. So now the battleship is it. Remember mm-hmm. the main... And the Texas were the first battleships, and then uh, they were downgraded to uh, cruisers. Not the main, because it was sunk. But the first Texas became a cruiser, and the second Texas was the second battleship. we renamed Texas, and that's the one that was World War One. World mm-hmm. war, Yeah, World War One. So that <clears throat> I could I could see that as the movement to battleships mm-hmm. because they worked. And they're big and expensive, but they worked. So uh, that's the deal. And the Spanish and now, American War
1: does really seem to be. The, the pivot point because you, you have this interesting metric in your book where you uh- f- where you periodically uh cite the uh comparisons that officers are making with the size of the u s navy versus that of other fleets and at the beginning of the eighteen eighties the United States Navy ranks at number twelve number thirteen and, and then <laughs> which is really after, not even ranked <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's and, not a rank. and, but but. By the time you get to uh, the, the early 20th century, after the Spanish American War, the United States is now—you're uh, you, you're quoting these officers that are talking about how we're basically third behind just Britain and France. We're actually ahead of Germany during a period of time, and now that the, it's, it's, it's less about building a navy and 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 more about you know keeping up and maintaining a, a very different naval structure than the United States has ever had in its history.
0: Yeah, that that's that is absolutely right. I mean, that's that's what happened. It, uh, it's modern warfare. It's, to be, it's truly the beginning of modern warfare. I, I no, know, I know there were other battles that that, that the ships have, but uh, I'd say this battle of ours and then the Japanese battle of Tsushima Straits. I mean, that those that's it. That those the, the defining guer decor, <laughs> just like the old days of. Uh, the british versus the french only now with modern ships where it's now ships against ships to win a war for your country it's not just protecting your country it's going away right getting them on uh, open oceans and things like that chasing them down so what would you expect out you know what happened is logical uh, battleships mm-hmm. that's what we need battleships bigger and bigger and bigger and better
1: and you can't wait for the war to build them. You have to have them ready when the war takes place, because you can't just pull them out of thin air.
0: Well, that's yeah, that's 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 true. I I, I think of that a little bit because of my airplane experience. That it takes a while to get an airplane ready mm-hmm. for combat. It, you know, it takes a couple of years, and ships take longer than that. You know, I I would say probably three or four years, and when and it's all kinds of. Ch- government changes and scientific changes while you're building it. That, that's the thing. And, and you're getting bigger guns, particularly if during this period of time, and bigger ships. Uh, just a little bit of tonnage here. I think that the first ones were less than 10,000 tons. They were probably about 6,000, 8,000, something like that. And then they started getting into the twelve and 14,000 tons uh the aircraft carrier that I was on was the Wasp, it was eighteen thousand tons, okay? The uh, the White Eisenhower was a hundred thousand tons. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. From World War II to to the nineteen eighties, from eighteen thousand tons to a hundred thousand tons. That takes a lot of engineering, a lot of fortitude, a lot of money. The price of them is just ridiculous if you look at the price of the, the modern ships, so Congress uh, is the one that has the purse, purse strings, and you have to convince Congress that that's really what you need to do and what you have to have to protect the country or project power. And this is when the argument is, the Mahanian argument, that whoever controls the sea wins. That's that's it.
1: And they seem to be much more amenable to that, the, the Congress of, uh, of the uh, early 20th, 20th century, is he much more amenable to that than their predecessors from 20, 30 years previously?
0: Well, that's why I was in, in Maine looking at Thomas Reed because he hated battleships. Now, trying to think about, well, what's the alternative? What's, what is this long term Speaker of the House, you know, a very famous guy? and He doesn't want battleships. And uh, a couple of the earlier Secretary of the Navies didn't like battleships either, but I'm thinking that, you know, after this spanish American wants to Reed re- quit you know he just resigned from office and stopped and stopped doing it. We started continued building battleships and I was just interested to find out uh why did he, he i don't think that Thomas Reed thought of uh, the United States being alone i mean he certainly was a kind of a guy who believed in the international business and all that sort of stuff and international business to me, seems to go with international defense, or offense, whatever you're going to call it, you know, whether it's protecting, but we we now have ships that are faster than the commercial ships, and they can shoot them at a longer range, so sometimes Roosevelt gets a lot of credit for this, but I think that uh, I, I see it, McKinley, I'm not too sure about Long, because he was an administrative guy and everything else, mm-hmm. but they worked together, they certainly accomplished a lot, whether the impetus was McKinley, who tended tended to be conservative, yet he certainly had a big navy. And, and, and Long, who tended to be out of office, how did that happen? How did he get such a big navy with with all those guys who, who don't seem to be the big the big decision makers? But obviously they must be. I, I, I like McKinley a lot. I think he's just a quiet guy and, and got things done. You know, he wasn't as noisy as Harrison, but. Uh, mm-hmm. Harrison started it as far as I'm concerned McKinley, I wouldn't say finished it but uh, the, he, he is really the beginning of the new era and the end of the old one that, uh, to me uh, after the Spanish-American War mm-hmm. so then what do you do? You build ships then you look around and then try to get involved in other people's uh, problems and that's what uh, Roosevelt does you know after the assassination he takes over and he and uh, he has a vision you know and he and uh, he writes to Mahan, and he writes to everybody else, and thinks about uh, what's going to happen. And he, he has uh, kind of his world vision. And I think that the Russo-Japanese War really is uh, significant for us during this period mm-hmm. because these are two these are two countries that are strange. I mean, you know, we've never been to war with Russia. The West Coast is worrying about Japanese, and all of a sudden the Japanese win. It's so, a holy cow. Now what do we do, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know what we do? We build more ships, right?
1: We we really don't stop building ships till after World War One, when you have the Washington Treaty, which sets limits on the battleships. Basically, once we start, it, it takes sort of a mutual, you know, agreement to stand down before we, you know, Halt that construction of all those major battleships.
0: Well, let me let me tell you a secret here. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to mention this. I originally ended the book in uh, 1917, in 1917, in the war, and hmm. when I sent it to the editors and everything else, and I have my own personal editor, and they all said, I think you need to add a little bit. I think I should go to the Washington Conference, because everybody's going to read this book. So, and then what happened? Come on, what happened, Paul? Well, tell them what happened. <laughs> and I said, you know, here, I'm stuck with my all my legislative stuff and I have this whole point we're going to make. And I said, you know, you're absolutely right. It has to have an end point. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I did it. And it, and it was a, a, not a bit of a problem, but I realized that uh, I, actually, I absolutely needed 1921 to end it, because that's what happened. You know, uh, uh, it was a stand-down, and a uh, political stand-down, and, and that becomes an argument you know during the franklin roosevelt investigation because you remember that during the stint during nineteen twenty franklin roosevelt was assistant secretary of the Navy. so he was he was very well in, involved in that and uh, i don't see that those guys agreeing with the conference nineteen twenty one but that had a lot to do with the uh, post-war uh... and uh, you know you look at it and say yeah uh, we don't want to do that anymore. We want to be nice and all that sort of stuff. And uh, I, it was a mistake for us because uh, we didn't follow up. You know, we, we saw we ended up by not having uh, the right fleet, but we reacted so well World War Two, which is a whole other story. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, that that stand-down was, was something. And uh, if, if you really look at the number of the tonnage that we destroyed after 1921, it's really remarkable mm-hmm. how, how much money stopped and stopped him and just disarmed him and we never finished we never did build a battle cruiser the first battle cruiser that we had i think britain had about four of them and i know the gas was germany had one are are you familiar what a uh, battle cruiser is i don't know if i explained it very well in the book or not
1: uh, you, you don't explain it because, as you point out, the U.S. doesn't have them. Basically, battlecruisers have the firepower of a battleship and the speed, but they're much less well-armored, so they can be slightly faster and be deployable more quickly.
0: And they're bigger. That's mm-hmm. the thing. It's a battlecruiser that's bigger, more people, more guns, less armor, and higher speed. Okay. The, we, we had some, and one of them became the first uh, aircraft carrier. It was, that's after my book. It was still, it was in the yard, you know, it was halfway finished. And then 1920s, they decided to bring this battle cruiser out and put the air, the flight deck on top of it. So our, our first aircraft carrier was, in fact, built on a battle cruiser hull. I don't remember the name of it or anything, but... Uh,
1: uh, Lexington, and Saratoga.
0: It was, it was one of those, was it, but was well, no, a battle hull.
1: Both, both of them were, were, were built on the uh, battle cruiser hulls.
0: Okay, okay. I said, see, I stopped thinking in 1921. <laughs> that's the end of my thought process
1: uh, well we've taken up a lot of your time before we go could you tell us what you're working on now
0: oh all right you really want to know sure <laughs> Okay. Well, only what you're willing to share I have a project now at the Missouri County Historical Museum to work on a display about post-Civil War convict leasing how about that
1: that sounds fascinating,
0: and it's a story about how Texas recovered from the Civil War by turning slaves into convicts, and they got they got the free labor from the prisons instead of the free labor from slavery. How's that for a project?
1: Is it just going to be a uh, presentation, or are you looking to? No,
0: it's not it? a book. It's 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 a, a display. Okay. Which is <laughs> the director's telling me what you know what what he wants and. Uh, He's like, okay, He won a panel, and when he introduced a panel, no more than four sentences, and no more than five pictures on the panel, and all this stuff. And I said, "I said, I just wrote a book that was three hundred pages, and I, I've got to tell you everything in four sentences." That's the difference between museums, museum science, and the history, I guess. <laughs> so that's that, that's a struggle, but it's uh, it's a uh, really it's a fascinating it's a fascinating struggle, it really is because. Uh, 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 I'm learning. I, I'm familiar with the area, era, of course, but uh, a, a new a new skill for an old man. Uh, con, uh, convict leasing, which is uh, pretty ugly, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and you know, being south of Houston, it's uh, pretty sensitive because uh, Sugarland was named after the Imperial Sugar Company, and they became millionaires because of convict labor. Billionaires because of convict labor. So Imperial mm-hmm. Sugar is the uh, poster boy for. Convict labor, so that's a interesting subject. So when they asked me to do it, I said, "Wow, why me?" <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> but I think it'll be all right. Well, it's really it's a total different, total diff- difference in uh, research. You know, as you as you, you as you know as a historian, uh, how do you do research, and what do you do research for, and how do you choose your sources? You know, and 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 in the Navy case, I was not prepared. To go into the depths of congress that i thought i would and that, you know when i opened a discussion with you there i am sitting sitting at a bar with my beer thinking that what's going on in the, the, the revelation congress did it now how long did it take me to get that conclusion after all that research because you know typically you look at the guys you look at the war you look at the spanish-american war you look at world war one and and you see the heroes, and you see the uh, all that sort of stuff, and then to come to a conclusion that Congress did it, uh, and, and some, a couple of my critics would say, "Congress always did it. That's not new." I'm, I'm sorry, <laughs> but is that true? I mean, Congress always does. it, so It's just nothing mm-hmm. new.
1: It's just the, you, you like the linear narrative that 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 a focus upon the executive, that one person making decisions, so often provides.
0: Yeah, and and of course the. You know what? What do we do now? You know, and, and this is uh, one of the reviews that I had r- last week. talked about uh, the Trump administration as if I'm supposed to give advice on the Trump administration. You know what? What they're going to do, and I and I told the, I told the guy who, who asked me this. I said, you know, the future is uh, as, as I mentioned before. The future is very hard to predict, as Yogi Berra said, because it hasn't happened yet, <laughs> <laughs> and his <laughs> and the historian. You know, what, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to be figuring it out. And I can tell you this from my experience and, and my so, We don't always get it right. Uh, we see that we entered in World War I. And we see what Wilson is trying to do. He wants to keep us out. And boy, there's mixed reviews on that. Uh, we event, eventually helped a lot. And we only lost out 70,000 men as opposed to the millions that the other countries lost. So it was good. But what we didn't need is battleships. We didn't. I don't think we used them at all. I know they were underway. We used them for escorts or something like that. So here, the war breaks out, and we don't know how to shoot to kill a submarine. So we have to buy five hundred something subchasers. Oh, by the way, I did write a blog for the Naval Institute about subchasers at the end of the war. I don't know if you care to track it down or not. Just a short blog, but uh, they asked me to do that uh, kind of as a postscript to the to the book, and I tried not I tried to be nice and say, yeah, we ed- we entered the war with battleships and we really needed subchasers. So what happens in my wars? We have all the battleships now coming to World War Two, and what do we need? Is aircraft carriers. Right? <laughs> <laughs> so, so now, now we have aircraft carriers, and what's the next step? Boy, it beats me. <laughs> you know, uh, is it going to be submarines and aircrafts? Is it going to be missiles and you know, that sort of stuff? And I'm not saying we always get it wrong, but it's hard to predict the future because it hasn't happened yet. Imagine, oh. I just love that.
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, uh, Paul, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to uh, speak with us about your book, and I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: And I, and I hope you don't mind my Southern Texas accent.
1: <laughs> not at all
0: you don't know, you notice that. And I'm <laughs> glad you said that you were from U T because if you said you were from A and M I would have said, Well I'll I'll I will i i will not use big words. <laughs> have a good day. <laughs>